It is a joy to continue to to return back to the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things I really enjoy about uh, just the the discipline of expository preaching is just the blessing to be able to, not just to sit under uh, the Word of God, but to immerse ourselves in, in a detailed study and really try to mine out all the rich truth that is contained in these verses. And really it's cause for us to ponder Uh, When we go through a gospel, there are sometimes we hit a narrative passage, a story, and we'll cover a lot of territory and kind of see the big picture. But then there's other times you get to slow down and kind of look at individual verses and phrases and really just ask the Lord to show us uh, what he intends to say to us in these verses. And so uh, I know it's a great joy for me to spend uh, the week working through these. I hope it's a great joy for you uh, to read these verses, hopefully to read ahead sometimes, um, and also to, to just meditate on the truth of the Word of God. In 1921, at the age of 22 years old, a young man named David Martin Lloyd-Jones became an apprentice to the royal physician Sir Thomas Horder. From there, he proceeded to earn two medical degrees from the University of London, graduating with distinction. By his mid-twenties, Lloyd-Jones was well on his way to becoming one of the most skilled and respected doctors in the British Empire. His contemporaries called him a brilliant scholar and a teacher of medicine. However, something began to stir in him. He had been a churchgoer for many years, but began listening to the biblical preaching that was coming out of the church, uh, Westminster Chapel, and soon began to grapple with the reality of his own sin, as well as his need for salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. And for two years it weighed heavily on him. Finally, Lloyd-Jones bowed the knee to Christ. He later wrote of this, I am a Christian solely and entirely because of the grace of God, not because of anything that I have thought or said or done. He brought me to know that I was dead, dead in trespasses and sins, a slave to the world and of the flesh and the devil, that in me dwelleth no good thing, that I was under the wrath of God and heading for eternal punishment." He then embraced the sacrifice of Christ for his sins and believed on the Lord completely. But Martin, as he was called, did not stop there. He soon became convinced after his conversion that the Lord was calling him into the gospel ministry. And by June 1926, he made the decision to walk away from his very promising medical career and devote himself to preaching. Everybody thought that he was crazy. Why would you give up a lifestyle and influence and money and prestige and respect associated with becoming an English doctor? I mean, this, this was a, a high position. He was going to serve uh, the, the, um, the royal family. He was going to become the queen's doctor. Why would he do this only to lose everything and become an obscure minister in likely what would be a small, poor English town? It just made no sense. Except that Martin Lloyd-Jones took all of his talent and his giftedness and his acumen and his passion and threw it into his new studies of preaching the gospel. Before too long, Lloyd-Jones became the minister of Westminster Chapel, the one that he heard preaching and was saved under. Westminster is in London. He pastored there for 30 years. And through his faithful and passionate expository ministry, he was known simply as the doctor. That was his new nickname and is hailed even today as the greatest 20th century preacher that England produced. Yes, Lloyd-Jones had given up his life only to find it again in Christ. 
And so that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, as we consider really the end of Matthew 10, we're going to have one more sermon in this chapter in the coming weeks here, but really this sort of lands Jesus' numerous exhortations. The end of Matthew 10, we're sort of struck by a a telescopic nature of Jesus' teaching. He's gone from a very specific local uh, focus of the 12 disciples to really more of a timeless, global cost of discipleship required of all followers. By the time Jesus reaches verse 24 of this chapter, uh, and really he's making a sweeping claim about the nature of Christian discipleship. And the true cost of following Christ will ultimately be uh, the hatred of the world. But not just of the world, but even by friends and family in some cases. But allegiance to Christ is supreme. In fact, he tells his followers in verses 32 and 33... Again, this comes at the end of a very long discourse. Verse 32, verse 33, he says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And so despite opposition from other people, every disciple is called to be a sound and bold confessor of Jesus Christ. We are to have a a Christ-centered and christ Uh, glorifying confession. But this will inevitably bring division. Continue on to verse 34. He says, Do not think that I came to, uh, to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So even if your own flesh and blood rejects the gospel, the Christian disciple must be consecrated and set apart unto Christ. Our love must be for him no matter what the cost. But the question persists, what is the true cost of discipleship? It's not just the cost of making a confession. It's not just the cost of uh, having family and friends turn away from you. What is it really going to take to follow Christ? And the Lord really gives his final answer. Again, he's been building and building and building all throughout his, his exhortations here. What is the final answer? And we find this in verses 38 and 39. Verses 40 to 42 is really a, a different argument altogether. But really, this is the final Uh, statement he makes in this passage, verses 38 and 39. This will be our text today. Jesus says this, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. These two verses represent a foundational truth about the nature of discipleship. In fact, some version of this saying appears in all four Gospels. All four Gospels contain uh, something of this truth in different variations. Even in Matthew, it appears twice. We're going to see this a little bit later when we go to chapter 16. But Matthew 16, verses 24, 25 are virtually the same thing. And so as we explore Jesus' saying, we're going to employ the help of other uh, variations and other texts in order to bring more clarity. But really, verses 38 and 39, if you were to look at these and break them out, they contain three basic imperatives, three basic imperatives, three commands given by Jesus to his would-be disciple. Again, what does it take 
to follow Christ. The first imperative is this, to take your cross, to take your cross. Look at verse 38. He says, he says it in the negative. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Let's look at the first part of this where he really zeroes in on the idea of taking your cross. He who does not take his cross is not worthy of me. Now this saying, this sentiment has been popularized by culture, secular culture. When a person really reckons with a difficult condition or a circumstance, it's not uncommon for them to say, well, this is my cross to bear, and they sort of say it tongue-in-cheek without really giving much credence to, to what it actually means. In many ways, by popularizing the phrase, we've softened the meaning and really emptied the phrase itself of all of its meaning. But when Jesus' Jewish disciples first heard him utter that phrase, that you are to take your cross, they would have stood there in shock and horror. Why? I want to read you just some words from New Testament scholar R.T. France. He says this about this phrase. Crucifixion was a punishment favored by the Romans, but regarded with horror by most Jews and was by now familiar in Roman Palestine as a form of execution for slaves and political rebels. It was thus not only the most cruel form of execution then in use, but it also carried the stigma of social disgrace when applied to a free person. To have a member of the family crucified was the ultimate shame. Crucifixion was an inescapably public fate and drew universal scorn and mockery, as we're going to see in chapter 27. And that public disgrace, as well as physical suffering, began not when the condemned man was fixed to the cross, but with the equally public procession through the streets in which the victim had to carry the heavy cross piece of his own gibbet among the jeers and insults of the crowd. So again, this was not just sort of this uh, uh, sanitized, compassionate way of capital punishment. This was a torturous, humiliating, disgraceful, agonizing way to go. No one in Jesus' day would have jumped at the chance to carry the cross to crucifixion. But this is what Jesus calls for. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this phrase verbatim. Luke has the only exception. He adds the word daily. Daily. But again, the cross was an instrument of death. And so, was, what was Jesus telling the disciples? The answer is this. If you want to be my disciple, you have to die. You have to die. Now, immediately we have to ask the question, what is he talking about? He's talking about literal death? Suicide? Fatalistic martyrdom? What is he talking about? Because, again, you hear your Messiah tell you you have to die. That sends shivers down your spine. It sends shivers down my spine. But that's not what Jesus is primarily talking about here. Now, there are cases when, yes, your faith will cost you your life, but that is not the meaning. Remember, Luke adds the word daily. And since we know that a person cannot die daily physically, Jesus must be talking about something else, and he is. Later in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus repeats the teaching, but he embellishes and adds a little bit more to this. He says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so the death that he's talking about is death to self. Death to self. This is self-denial. 
self-denial. More than this, as Luke would add, this is daily self-denial. In what way? What exactly of ourselves are we meant to deny and crucify? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 in your copy of Scripture. Romans chapter 8. It's a little bit farther along in the New Testament into the letters of Paul. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul lays out his own really self-awareness. He's acknowledging his own sin. That's where the passage he talks about the things that I want to do, I don't do. I do the very thing I hate and the good that I wish to do. I can't seem to do that. And then at the end of the whole thing, he says, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from the body of this death? And then he proclaims the grace and the mercy and forgiveness of God and he extols in the grace and kindness of God that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so, again, calling himself a wretched man. But really, chapter 8 really finishes the argument. It brings it around to full circle. And he explores here in chapter 8 really the fruit of a spirit-born person, the fruit of a spirit-filled life. He notes that those who are of the Spirit, he says, sets their minds on the things of the Spirit. And so as Christians, we are no longer the person who is enslaved to sin. Do we still battle with sin and fight against the flesh? We absolutely do. Christian perfectionism is nothing. That doesn't exist. As long as we are in the flesh, we will struggle in the flesh until the day we die and go to be with Jesus Christ forever. And so that is a very real battle. However, those who are of Christ are are in the discipline and practice of setting their mind on the things of the Spirit. And so what do you do with your sinful nature, with your sinful impulses? What are we to do as Christians? Well, Paul says you have to kill them. Romans 8, 12 and 13. I'm dropping us in the middle of a huge argument here, but for our purposes, look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul notes here that when we become born again through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we are no longer slaves to our sin. He makes that argument earlier in Romans chapter 6. And while we will not be again free from sin on this planet, we do not live as those who are enslaved to our sin. Paul says in verse 12 that we are not under obligation to the flesh. You and I, we don't owe our flesh anything. We don't turn back to our old life, our old self, our old flesh, and say, well, you know, you and I had some good times together. Let's go back to that. No Christian wants to go back to the old ways of your sinful past, your sinful life. No Christian who has been born again, regenerated in the heart and the mind, no Christian wants to go and disobey God. Now, are there times you do? Sadly, yes. But the the meditation of our heart, the desire of our heart, is not to pay back your flesh in the deeds of the flesh. The desire is to honor God and do the things of the Spirit. On the other hand, again, if we confess Christ and yet we live enslaved to sin, again, you confess Christ, you say, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, but you find yourself enslaved to sin, it soon becomes evidence that you have not been saved. If there is, again, no change... No change in your life before the time that you confess Christ to the time that you are living and professing to be a believer. If nothing has changed for you, it is evidence 
that you do not belong to Him. That's why He says in verse 13, if you are living, present tense, if you are living and have your being and your regular practice, you are living according to the flesh, He says you must die. He's not talking about He's talking about spiritual death for those who have a a pattern of sinfulness in their life that has not been broken. However, verse 13b, the second half of the verse, he says, if by the Spirit you are, present tense progressive, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is an active mortification, that's the old word, mortification, the killing of your own sin presently and progressively in your life. And what is the required action? How do you do this? Spiritual warfare really is putting to death the sinful deeds of the body. What does it look like? Well, we could really explore this for weeks. Some of the best sermons I've ever heard on this have taken a long time to get through. John Owen, if you ever want to read a great treatise on these two verses, John Owen, he's a 17th century Puritan, wrote a book, a little 86-page book, called The Mortification of Sin in Believers. And he exposits and really teases out the meaning of these two verses. It's a little bit of English you have to kind of get through, but if you can wrestle through it, it is a fantastic work on the mortification of sin in believers. But what does it look like for us to do this? I want you to consider what Paul says. You don't have to turn here. Let me just read this to you. How do we put to death these deeds? What does this look like? Paul says this in Colossians 3, verse 5. He says, Therefore, consider... Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also Put them aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, you are to engage in the mental discipline of regarding all the deeds of your former life to be dead and lost, and you live in reality of that. It is a a battlefield of your mind where you're you're saying no to ungodliness. That's what Titus chapter 2 says. The grace of God has come down to us to teach us and instruct us on how to say no. Beloved, you do not have to commit sins. Now, again, by your nature, you will. But when you're faced with this question, I could go the right way, I could go the wrong way. If you're in Christ, you have the ability in Christ in that moment to say, you know what, I'm going to honor God right now and I'm not going to do that. I will not be enslaved to that. You can do like Joseph from Potiphar's wife. You can run. You can run away. If you're watching TV and something comes on, you're like, well, I could watch this or I could not. Turn it off, unplug it, and go read a book. Go do something else. I'm serious. When you know that you could be stuck in some kind, a business partner comes to you and says, here, we can make a lot of money right now and and offers you an option, the old you would have said, well, let's do that. I got bills to pay. Christmas is coming. But the new you in Christ says, I'm not going to do that because the rewards of heaven, the honor of Christ is worth more to me than my sin. 
you have the ability in Christ, again, in Christ, to say no to ungodliness. That's a mental decision that you're making. How do we put these sins to death? John Owen says, mortification, the killing of your sin, is the soul's vigorous opposition to self, whereby sincerity is most evident. You have to oppose your own self. In other words, sincere self-denial is the key to the crucifixion of sins. But not just any old self-denial. We're not aesthetics here. We don't just beat ourselves up for the sake of personal piety. No, this is self-denial for the pursuit of Christ-likeness. You don't just deny yourself because it makes you a better person. You deny your, your sinful self because you want to honor God. And you care about what Christ thinks of you. And you care about His righteousness and His holiness. And the fact that He's actually given His life on the cross for your sins. And if He has paid for your sins, do I really want to continue to place burdens on his shoulders as he's dying on the cross. Again, sovereignty and theology aside here, I'm talking about living day to day, not heaping up even more sins when the grace of God has given you the ability to say no in Christ. But this is the first charge to the disciples. He tells them, you have to, you got to take up your cross. you got to die, guys. That's what he tells them. You have to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, Paul says in Galatians 5.24. And if we cannot learn how to deny ourselves and die to ourselves, Jesus says we will not be fit to be disciples. Again, it's not just all self-sacrifice and self-denial and spiritual mortification. There is a positive, active component to this dying to self, and that's what Jesus talks about next. The second imperative here, the second imperative is to follow after Jesus. The first one's to take your cross, but now here's the other side of it, to follow after Jesus. Jesus has already said this many times in Matthew, over and over again, he's going to continue to say it. This becomes a key imperative, follow me, follow me, follow me. But the disciples, we are those who follow Jesus. And the question is, well, how do we follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? Well, we do this in two primary ways. First, we follow in his teaching. We follow his teaching. A little later in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus tells his weary disciples, he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. And he's, he's, by implication, he's talking about those who are, who are just crushed down and destroyed by their own condition, by their sins, by their anxieties. He says, come to me. And then he says this, and learn from me. Learn from me. Then he says, take up my yoke. Take my yoke. That's a Hebraism for the body of his teaching. So when you would have a a whole body of teaching, your curriculum vitae, whatever you've done, whatever your body or your theology is, he says, take all of that that I have been giving to you. Take my teaching and put that on yourself. And he says, for that's actually uh, light. My burden's light, he says. But the idea here has to do with his teaching. He says, come to me and learn from me. We are meant to learn what Jesus teaches. He has a lot to say. What he teaches us about God and the world and sin and the flesh and life and death and salvation. What he has to say about himself. What he says about the spirit, the future, everything. Anything that comes out of the mouth of Jesus, we are entrusted to know these things. There's no trivial point of doctrine in the Bible. 
Now, we understand that there are things that are secondary that are not salvific, that if you, if you get this little piece of doctrine wrong, it's going to be uh, destruction for you. That's not what we're talking about. But there are blessings to learning from Christ. If you read the book of Revelation, now, the, people are reading this book more and more these days, it seems, but when you read the beginning of Revelation, John pronounces a blessing to those who study and understand. There's a blessing There's a great delight in learning from Christ. So everything that Jesus would teach, we are responsible to become students. Furthermore, to add to that, Matthew 28, 19, and 20 tells us that making disciples includes teaching others to obey all that He has commanded. And so again, following Christ in His teaching, but also as Matthew 28 notes, the second part of this is following Christ, secondly, in living We observe how Jesus lives, what He says and what He does, and we pattern our lives after Him. How did Jesus live? There's there's a popular phrase 15, 20 years ago, what would Jesus do? That just sent, you know, that sold tons and tons of bumper stickers all around the Christian merchandise world. But really, the, the question to ask is not what would Jesus do. The question is, what did Jesus do? What does he say? What does he do? What does he demand? What does he expect? What does he command from us? I'm not going to sit here and speculate all day long. I want to know what he says, what he does, what he tells me to do. I want to obey that. That is the greater yoke for us to follow and model our lives after the way that Jesus lived. And so, in order to engage in discipleship, we are learning the teachings of Jesus which are encapsulated in the Scriptures. And then we are learning to live like Christ. And in doing so, we teach other people how to do the same thing. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I would encourage you, and I would exhort you to find someone else who's a little younger in the faith, come alongside them, and just be helpful to them. Now you might say, you know, people don't usually say, well, I'd like to enter into a discipleship relationship with you. I mean, you can do that if you'd like, see what they say. But really more of what it looks like is, hey, let's get together for coffee and just, how you doing? Do you have any questions? Can I help you at all? Is there anything I can pray for for you? And just bear their burdens with them and just help them. And they might ask you the question, well, how, how do you be a, a Christian dad or a Christian mom? How, what, how do I study the Bible? I don't really know what to pray for. Like all these kinds of things that you've probably been doing for a few years, you can help somebody else. You can teach them to do the things that you have learned from Christ and from other faithful believers. This is why Paul exhorts the church in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. In all the ways that I'm like Jesus, do what I'm doing. Paul would very also quickly note to you that the things he's doing that are not like Christ don't do that. But in all the ways that I'm living and speaking and learning and growing like Jesus, do what I'm doing. Follow me as I follow him. Elsewhere, Luke 14, 27, Jesus says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We must be followers. We must follow him in all that he teaches and all that he has done. Which brings us to the third imperative here in our text. The third imperative is that we must, in doing so, lose our lives. Lose our lives. Look at verse 39. Matthew 10. Verse 39 says, He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. 
Now, to be fair, verse 39 is really functionally an embodiment of verse 38. Dying to self means losing your life. Following Christ implies really the same thing. So, verse 39 is generally a a restatement, a reinterpretation of the previous verse, but there's something very distinct about the sentiment. It's more all-encompassing. Losing one's life is not an action step. It's not really a direction of, of where to go and the things to do. Really, it's a worldview. It's an end game. What are you going to do today? Well, I'm going to lose my life today. How are you going to do that? Well, I'm not really quite sure. But there, there's a philosophy here that, that touches every single decision that you make. Look at it again. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. It's interesting to note here that Jesus does not use the normal word for life. The word that's generally used for the word life in the original Greek is zoe. Zoe refers to just a general physical uh, life that you would expect. He uses a different word here. He uses the word psyche. Psyche. Now some scholars have translated psyche to mean breath of life. Breath of life. But it is universally meant to refer to the soul. The soul. Not just your physical flesh and blood and your heart and everything about this life. It is your soul. In fact, the English Bible translates this soul in many, many places. The same Greek word. So it's more than just your your day-to-day life, the decisions that you're going to make, what you're going to do, your job, your hobbies, your preferences, your personality. It goes way deeper than that. It really becomes the, the inside of who you are, your heart and your soul. The stuff of you, whatever makes you who you are, inside, it's identity. It's identity. Who are you really? And so Jesus unleashes one of the greatest paradoxes in Scripture. Here it is. He who has found his life will lose it. The word lose here in the original Greek is apoluo, which means to utterly destroy something. It's not like you're just going to lose and, oh, where did I put that? It's like car keys. You're not just going to lose your soul and find it somewhere else over here. No, this is to utterly destroy your life. So if you find your life here, Jesus says, you will destroy it. You will destroy it. What does he mean? Again, this first great principle of the great paradox here, finding is losing, living is dying. In what way? What is he talking about? There's nothing wrong with wanting to live. In fact, that is the right impulse. To want to live your life here and now, that's right. We are not nihilists who don't care about anything and just wish we could die. That's not the right impulse. That is actually the struggle of the human condition when people become so depressed and dispirited that they despise their own life. That is not of Christ. We are those who value life, who love life. So that's not what he's talking about. It's this instead. It's trying to build your life through your own devices for this world only and doing so without Christ. If taking up your cross means self-denial, then finding your life here apart from Christ means self-indulgence. It's the other way around. It's the opposite of what he tells us to do. We get a picture, a better picture of this when we consider what is said in the other Gospels. Just a couple of references here. Luke 17, 33, Jesus says, Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it. John 12, 25, Jesus says, He who loves his life 
loses it. Matthew 16, 25, whoever wishes to save his life loses it. Again, all of this really paints a picture. All of this illustrates a self-focused effort to essentially become your own God. That's what living for yourself on this planet essentially means. It's a theological effort to be your own God. I control my future. I control all my decisions. I manifest my own destiny. I speak power and things and money and wealth and prosperity and life and vitality into existence because I am the center of my own universe. I do everything to make myself happy. I do everything for my own ends, my own purpose. This is a person who cares nothing about what God says about life and salvation and eternity. I want to live my life my way. That is what he's talking about. But Jesus says, if you do that, you will utterly destroy your life. You will. And we see evidence of this all the time. All the time. And friends, I know you know what I'm talking about. This is the saddest thing in the world. Millionaires and billionaires and celebrities, famous people who achieve all their earthly dreams, everything they could ever, and you know, They'll sit down with Oprah and they'll interview and talk about their life. And well, you know, what did you aspire to do when you were a kid? Oh, this is beyond my wildest dreams. And they have all this money for all these things. And what happens to them five or ten years later? They're gone. They're gone. They destroy all their relationships. They fall into scandal. They die in misery. Now, I'm not saying that to scare you into not aspiring. Nothing like that. And I'm not saying every single person who becomes wealthy is a person who's committed to destruction. But don't we see the examples of this self-fulfilling prophecy everywhere? Why is it that the most famous and rich and powerful and prominent comedians in the whole world always die in depression? Again, I don't say this to mock their pain. I do not. It is very, very sad when a person destroys their own life, especially when there's so much promise and talent and joy that can be found in this life. But I say all of this to exhort you to know that this is not the way. Becoming famous, becoming rich, becoming self-important, achieving all your wildest dreams, that will not, number one, make you happy. It certainly won't save you. To build an empire, a kingdom here, only to lose it in the end? You tell a person to lose their life or hate their life and they're going to recoil in disgust. Why? Because to the natural person, the thought of death only produces fear and sadness and finality. Death for them is the end. What do you mean lose my life? I've spent 30, 40 years of my life to build this. What do you mean lose this? That's offensive to them. Because this is their one shot, they would say. This is it. I've only got one life. I'm going to make it big. But yet to those who are spiritual, who understand Christ, who've been born again through regeneration and resurrection, when God recreates them and saves them and revives them and restores them, for the Christian, this life is not all there is. This life is to be used as a tool to serve Him for eternity. This is just a testing ground, my friends. What is a hundred years at best to eternity? It's a drop in a bucket. It's a small little down payment. It's a a very short time to live your life faithful to Christ. 
if you're considering the realm of eternity. This life is really, to scale, nothing at all. It's very small. It's very insignificant. And so we receive the words of Jesus with great comfort and joy and assurance. He says, whoever has lost his life for my sake will find it. That's a, it's a promise here. But the key phrase is for my sake. For my sake. Mark adds, and for the sake of the gospel. So you live your life, you spend yourself for the sake of Christ. And if you do that, you will surely find and keep and save your own life. I'll tell you, I've, I've talked to so many people And I've heard stories, I've read lots of stories. I read biography, I read history. You should too, by the way. I've read so many stories of those who've given up everything, everything earthly they have just forsaken because they knew that God was calling them to something else. They knew that He was calling them to live a little higher for Him. And they forsake everything and they give their life to Christ. They don't die in misery, my friends. They don't die impoverished of spirit. They die with joy and gladness and thankfulness for the mercy and grace of God in their own life. You talk to a believer on their deathbed, hours before they go, who's lived faithful to Christ, who's given their life for Christ, they will have no regrets. If you save your life here and now, it is to live as a a life of righteous subjection to Christ. But if you, if you do this, if you live your life for Christ, not only will you save it here and now, you will also save it in eternity. There are so many people who've given up their old life here, and God has quite literally saved them and given them a new life here. I've talked to people who have, before Christ, done time in prison, have, been, have had a rap sheet a mile long, who's been struggling with substance abuse, I mean, divorced uh, marriages, remarriage, adultery, all kinds of things, who before they came to Christ have destroyed everything. They come to Christ, He regenerates them, He saves them, and He actually begins to build something new in them. And now you talk to them and you say, what's your life like now? I'm still a sinner saved by grace, but God has given me a second chance. He's given me a life here. Now again, that's not prosperity gospel. I'm not promising you anything. You come to Christ, you might have a more difficult life to come in this life. It's possible. You will have trouble. You will have trial. Read the previous couple of verses. Your family will probably turn against you. You'll be hated for the name of Christ. That will happen. But you will die in peace and in assurance knowing that Christ has saved you for eternity. He promises those who lose their life here will find their life in Him. How do we see this applied? I want to see an example of this. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I love this passage. And I'll use my pulpit to say, you should too. You should love this passage too. Philippians chapter 3, Paul is really preparing to illustrate what a life devoted to Christ looks like. But what he does this though, it's pretty remarkable the first thing he's going to do is he's going to spell out all the earthly reasons why he has a a cause to to take pride in his own life and accomplishments. First, he's going to brag about what he's done, what he's accomplished, 
and then he's going to destroy all of it. It's pretty cool. Look at this, Philippians chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 3. Paul's really making an argument here. So he says, for we, talking about himself, he's a, he's a Jew by, by uh, ethnicity. That's his culture, that's his heritage. He says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself have confidence even in the flesh. Or he says, might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, but as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He says, as a Jew, as a Pharisee, as an aspiring rabbi, ethnicity, heritage, family, accomplishments, there's no Jew better in Israel than me. I did it all, he says. If anybody has any reason of you to to boast in the flesh, it's me. But then he says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as but rubbish. The the Greek here is dung. There's actually a stronger word there, but I'll use the word dung, he says. All of that is rubbish so that I might gain Christ and might be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, look at my life. Look at my balance sheet. Look at my rap sheet. Look at everything I've done. The schools I went to, the prominence I held, the things I did, the zeal I had, the passion for truth and righteousness. I was pretty great. All of that, I have stacked up in one column and I said, this column of my life is garbage in comparison to knowing Christ. Everything else is loss. He goes, I, and, I, and he says, I've lost everything. Read the book of Acts. Paul loses everything. Israel disinherits him. The temple kicks him out. He's no longer a Pharisee. He's no longer a Jewish rabbi. It gets to the point where he actually has to shake off the dust from his feet and go minister to the Gentiles, the people he used to spit at. Paul lost everything. Wealth, Jewish prominence. I have no idea about his family history, but I guarantee some family members were pretty angry at Paul for what he did. Paul lost everything. By the end of his life, he writes letters to his friends saying, I'm in prison, can you bring me my cloak and some books to read? That's all he's got. He says later in 2 Timothy, everybody has turned away. Nobody stood with me except a couple of people. And he dies in a Roman jail beheaded for the gospel. He lost everything. But he says earlier, he says, whether it's for me to stay and live among you or depart be with the Lord, he goes, I don't really care because he's found his purpose. He's found his assurance in Christ Jesus. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to have fellowship with him. 
and with his sufferings and with his glory and with his resurrection. I want to know him. That's better than anything else in the world. He counted everything else as loss in comparison to knowing Christ. Imagine being Noah's neighbor and keeping a nice lawn and building a nice house. Can you imagine? Spending 50, 60 years building a great property. Noah, what are you building? What is that? That's an eyesore. I'm going I'm to file a lawsuit because I get that ark off my property here. Can you imagine a manicured lawn next to the ark? What good is all of that if you don't get in the ark? Right? What good is it to build your life on your own self-righteousness and deny Christ and not follow Him and not put your trust and your faith and your hope and your aspirations and everything in Him? What good will it do you? It will do nothing. You will only destroy your life. What good is it to build an empire here that will all be lost when Christ returns? But if you lose your life and find it in Christ, God will give you of His kingdom. Friends, don't spend your life building something that's going to be destroyed in the end. Don't, Don't build a life here and miss Christ. Don't miss Him. Forsake your sins. Let all the allure of this world go. Am I telling you to just live as a monastic and sell everything and be impoverished and just hate everything in this world? No. But hold everything loosely. Whatever I have from God He's given me, whatever He takes away belongs to Him anyway. Let go of your attachment to this life and honor Christ. If He blesses you, He blesses you. Praise Him for it. But hold on to Christ. Lose yourself. Find Him. Follow Him. Live for Him. And you will have found eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we read a text like this and we grapple with it. And Lord, in many ways, this feels very difficult because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. I, I want my life here. Our heart has an attachment to the here and now. We, we get so worked up about the here and now and we have stress and anxiety and fear and worry and Everything. And so, Lord, we ask you to have mercy and to help us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow you, to lose our life and find it in you. Lord, this is probably going to look different for each one of us. And so I ask that you would minister into the individual hearts of the people here and convict where you need to convict and loosen what must be loosened, and fortify what must be strengthened. And help us, Lord, not to live for ourselves and for this life, but to live for you. Help me to die to myself today, to take up my cross of death to sins and self and follow you. Lord, let that be the meditation of every one of us, even now. And so we ask for your mercy and grace. We thank you that you have given us your Son, that Jesus Christ, perfect God-man in human flesh, came and lived here 
not for himself, but for the glory of the Father, that Jesus came and lived and died on the cross to pay for sins and then rose again to bring us new life to those who trust in him. I pray that you would transform lives even today, that we would stop living for ourselves and look to you for life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.